Hey friends, if this is your first time listening to the Spillway podcast, we encourage you to start at the prologue and work your way up to this sequential episode. If you choose to forge on despite this plea, keep these four things in mind. First, we are a serial. Our work is relational, and the beginning episodes are about building trust, familiarity, and shared frameworks and contexts. And also, white people talking to white people about white people things is a newer concept for a lot of folks. We don't want to push people into the deep end. So please, save yourself the headache. We'll be here when you're caught up. Two, stay in your own lane. We build space to examine, critique, hold, and love white people as we navigate pushback and relapse in the mechanics of white supremacy and white shame within white culture and white culture alone. And that's however much we can in the fluidity of culture. Three, we're in the combined fabric of destiny. Our humanity, as Dr. King defines, is interrelated. Everyone is caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. That's point one. Point 3.5, we are a piece of the broader racial justice movement. We're not trying to divert resources nor claim that we're a one-stop shop. Being in cross-cultural community, educating ourselves, and being in good relation is unquestionably vital to our work. This show is about white people, cleaning and mending our own section of the fabric and the work we need to do before, during, and after showing up in shared spaces. And lastly, one right way. This form of grounding empathy, compassion, patience, and understanding at the core of white culture may or may not work for everyone. That's okay. There are other resources out there. We all share the same goal as beautifully defined by Adrienne Marie Brown to create a world where everyone experiences abundance, access, pleasure, human rights, dignity, freedom, transformative justice, peace. We long for this. We believe it is possible. We're trying this approach, but that doesn't mean that it's the best or right approach for you. If it doesn't apply, let it fly. And with that, for better or worse, we began entering the spillway. Reservoirs and dams are these incredibly massive human-made structures that completely change the ecosystem they're in, for better and worse. When there's too much pressure on the dam or there's too much water that cannot be contained in the reservoir or the dam, engineers must release this excess water in a way that doesn't further impact its surroundings. And the earliest dams simply had floodgates that would open, releasing the water, and the water would shoot out of the floodgate at incredibly dangerous speeds and pressure, destroying life and habitats downstream. Just try to imagine wildlife, vegetation, or anyone trying to live with water constantly hitting them at 83 miles an hour. It's just not going to happen. And at the turn of the 20th century, spillways were invented to slow down the incredible speed and pressure of the water as it was released from the dam. Concrete control sections and discharge channels now guide this water out of the dam while the water has to encounter these things called shoot blocks. These shoot blocks are strategically engineered and constructed to absorb a tremendous amount of energy from the water. 
This way, the water pressure does not destroy life downstream. And translating the mechanics of a spillway into the spillway, as white people, we can have a tendency to be a lot like water when we talk about race and racism. Most of the time, we very rarely like to talk about race. So these ideas, these experiences and behaviors, they reservoir inside of us and it builds pressure. Then, because white people don't have any social structures or supports to release this pressure, the reservoir can overfill. Worse yet, when race and racism become part of everyday conversations through events that spark national dialogues to individual exchanges that happen in our homes and neighborhoods, these floodgates can open. Decades and centuries of unarticulated sentiments and sediment around shame and supremacy, unhealed trauma can come out of the dam at 83 miles an hour. The spillway exists in the attempt to co-construct control sections and discharge channels with and for other white people, an organization exclusively devoted to healing the intergenerational and historical trauma and perpetration-induced traumatic stresses of white people without supremacy or shame. And there's actual data and science behind the work that we do and why we do the work that we do. In what we're calling shoot blocks, we've constructed shorter episodes where we explore the ideas, the mechanics, and the theories that inform our work at the spillway. Let's continue on with a conversation about perpetration-induced traumatic stress. people just traumatized and hurt and victims are we just these things no i can tell you we're not acting in healthy ways and we're also not victims like how else do we explain white culture or white people do you think people who are mentally well or quote healthy degrade other people do you think emotionally intelligent people become more human when they devalue another human's right to exist no, probably not, right? It's all about perspective. Having been trained as a social worker, I approach my work with trauma-informed care. Did the person who cut you off in traffic do this because they absolutely hate you and wanted to ruin your you, very specifically you, your day? Probably not, right? Maybe they're running late for work. Maybe they're distracted by the kids in the back seat. Maybe they didn't know their blinkers out and they believe they gave you fair warning when they were merging. We don't know what's going on in their world outside of this brief interaction, yet we immediately jump to conclusions. The most common being, they're an asshole. Not they're being an asshole, they are. From the minute they wake up to the minute they go to bed, they are an awful human being. Trauma-informed care says, pump the brakes and imagine a world bigger than what we immediately experience. It requires that we hold multiple truths. This isn't soundbite activism. If you leave this episode or our work at the spillway believing that white people are only one thing, we ask that you expand your capacity for multitudes. Right now, white culture isn't about nuance. It's about either or thinking. It's about one right way mentalities. It's about perfectionism. Our realities and lived experiences are far more complex, nuanced, and flawed than white supremacy and shame make space for. Am I asking us to extend a little bit of empathy and compassion and understanding to white people? 
yeah, who doesn't want a world with more of these things? Have white people historically been afforded these things? Absolutely. But are white people currently being afforded these things? And I think our answer can be found in the shared heart of cancel culture on the left and conspiratorial culture on the right. What I'm not asking you to do is to create excuses, defend, or justify your actions or someone else's if or when racism shows up. We're here to try to make sense of the bigger picture. We cannot miss the forest for the trees. I really wanted to say this at the top of the episode because so many white people believe other white people are just one thing, perpetrators. And we do this without imagining or considering the environment or the world that's needed to create perpetrators. Coined by Dr. Rachel McNair in the titular book published in 2002, Perpetration-Induced Traumatic Stress, or PITS, looks at how creating harm and trauma to others creates traumatic stressors within the perpetrator. PITS is controversial because it asks our culture to see murderers, rapists, executioners, and domestic abusers as human beings. Historically and currently, it's been much easier to name any of these individuals or groups of people as inhuman as animals, monsters, as a them, not part of an us. As Dr. McNair says, quote, suggesting they are traumatized is suggesting they might be human, end quote. Suggesting they might be human implies they are capable of being complete, complex, and nuanced human beings that aren't static. We don't have to like this fact, but we can't ignore it. If we refuse to acknowledge that perpetrators are human, we don't allow for the possibility that the unethical treatment could have been prevented. The perpetrator needs support or healing or rehabilitation as possible. And over the last 12 years, military psychology has looked into, quote, moral injury, end quote, which this can often occur for combat veterans. Moral injury is the, quote, lasting psychological biological, spiritual, behavioral, and social impact of perpetrating, failing to prevent, or bearing witness to acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations, end quote. As trauma requires an inability to move beyond the traumatic event, or a stuckness, as Resma Menicum calls it, two people can share an experience. But if one person gets mentally or emotionally stuck in that experience, it turns into trauma. Moral injury informs PITS. 20 years ago, Dr. McNair's work focused on PTSD, primarily used in the few decades leading up to the new millennium. And during this time, PTSD was almost exclusively utilized to understand the consequences of certain occupations, soldiers, first responders, police officers. However, over the last two decades, PTSD has come to encompass the experiences of some social identities in response to the traumatizing impacts of rape culture, of white supremacy, or heterosexism. And in the context of race and racism, many white people consistently experience a moral injury. What we do with this moral injury places us into different dimensions of shame or supremacy culture. Some white people want to avoid conversations of race and racism altogether because it makes us feel bad when talking about race and racism. There are white people who hyperfixate on race and racism to maintain white dominance. Uh, we see this in the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory. Some white people believe that nothing good comes from talking about race, and doing so only makes the problem worse for everyone. 
some white people are quick to point out race to silence conversations of racism. For example, why do you have to make everything about race? Or my stepdaughter is Asian, so dot, dot, dot. These four points, intrusive recollection, avoidance, negative connotations and mood, and alterations in arousal and reactivity, have been going on for decades, centuries even, creating enormous distress within white people. We don't know what life would be like without them. And yet, all of these points are the criteria for textbook PTSD symptoms. Do we as individuals have PTSD around race and racism? Yes and no. Yes, shame and supremacy culture have made individuals do some really regretful and heinous things. These events and actions can and have created a level of stuckness for many white people, unable to move past the pain that we've caused or bear witness to or feel like we've not been able to prevent. And also, because this form of stuckness has gone on for so long, we've begun to understand it as nothing more than white culture. In reality, so much of white culture is a trauma response, a response to the pain and struggles we were fleeing in Europe before we immigrated, but also a response to the intergenerational trauma our bodies hold, a current and historical response in pits we have from perpetrating, failing to prevent the violence of other white people or bearing witness to acts against people of color that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. As we know it today, white culture is built around PTSD and responses to that traumatic stress. Because PTSD symptoms are held within those who have the social power to enact racist actions, white people, this becomes known as PITS. A vast majority of white people hold perpetration-induced traumatic stress. The primary intention of the spillway is to help white people acknowledge our individual and collective pits, find healing, and build a white culture that's not a tremendous trauma response, but one of compassion, empathy, patience, and understanding. The paradox of being white in America is that we are simultaneously the perpetrators and the victims of race and racism. And by exploring and understanding these stressors, we can know our role as victims, in quotes. However, understanding that we hold these pits helps us to know our role as the perpetrator too. So we, you talk a lot about in the first couple of episodes um, about how we are similar and different, you and I. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we differ on is the belief that everyone is redeemable. Mm. I struggle with that. Uh, you, you live it and embody it, but I, I struggle with that. Um, what do you struggle with? Well, I just don't, I just don't believe that necessarily. I think there's people who, and I, I think redemption hinges on the person wanting it. Right. And I don't think everybody does. Um, and so I, I don't believe that people, everyone is, and that's one of the reasons I'm here Mm. because I, I want to try to understand that point of view more. Um, also, you know, I also don't believe that there are good and bad people. Like, I don't, I don't believe that. I think there's a wide variety of folks who are complex and do things for complex reasons. Um, 
but I also definitely stand stand in this camp of like, you know, somebody will say something and I'll be like, oh, okay, you're going to be over there in that group for me. Um, but also with pits, it's hard because I know that I'm part of that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so having that grace for myself means I should have it for others. And that's really hard. I feel like both of these these mini sods are me being like, no. <laughs> no, it's hard. I don't want to. Um, yeah, that and that's like your whole thing is holding space for, you know, perpetrators in quotes. Right. Frustration. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And it's um, hard to look into it and be like, oh, I'm part of that also. Mm. That's difficult. Well, the thing that I think makes it easier for me to access it is the concept of moral injury, that it is either perpetrating, failing to prevent, Mm -hmm. or even just bearing witness to it. That has an impact on me. And I think that those last two, failing to prevent and bearing witness, I think are how we talk a lot about race and racism today. Mm -hmm. We see these like microaggressions or we see these online comments that are rooted in ignorance or confusion and sometimes just straight up disgust and racism. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of white people now will just check out. Oh, nope. I don't have to do that. That's not my work. I'm checking out, but I, but I'm witnessing it. And I also didn't fail to prevent it. I'm not Mm -hmm. intervening. And so it creates a moral injury within us because we see that it still goes on, but we're not interrupting it. And a lot of that's done through social media. I feel like now. So much. I feel like more than in person, maybe. Oh, 100%. Well, not 100%, but yes, yes. What you're saying. (laughs) Yes. Like we're also doing it in person too. When you Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I didn't mean 100%. Yeah. Sorry. Um, No, I I know what you mean. Like, yeah, it happens in real life, real time. But a majority of the time, it is on social media. But social media is how we, especially during COVID, how we all interacted with each other. Yes. Yes. Because that's all we could do. All we could do. Sorry, I digress. No, you're not digressing at all. You're aggressing. That's perfect. <laughs> okay. um, but those two pieces make the most sense to me as to why and how racism still like impacts me as a white person because I see other white people acting out of pocket and acting real messy. And if I don't intervene or if I don't like, if I'm not failing to prevent, then I feel bad that I didn't do anything. Right. Then I feel shitty. And that doesn't mean that I'm a victim. Right. Um, but it does mean by like a textbook definition, it means victim, but I'm not, I'm not a helpless victim. I think right. so often when we use the word victim, we associate it with helplessness. Right. Uh, and so I've always kind of struggled with using that language on this spellway, perpetrator and victim. But yeah. it is, I think, the the easiest thing for folks to tap into. Right. You're not being victimized. Correct. Right. Correct. Like instead yeah. of, yeah, like I think more when you're a victim, it's something happening to you from somebody else in a very direct way is how I I mean, I don't know what the textbook definition is exactly, but that's like when you're scrolling through Facebook and you see somebody being messy, as you said, which is great. I think that's wonderful. Um, 
not them being messy, but like that term. Right. Um, when you scroll through through social media, you see some a white person being messy. They're not being victimized. Right. Right. So that's that's what you, I think that that's where that difference yeah. lies. And you're also not being victimized by watching it and not doing anything. Right. Oh, that's what I mean. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I missed that part. But yeah, yeah. You're not being victimized. You're experiencing yeah. moral injury. Correct. Right. But you're not like a victim in that sense. In a helpless sense. Yeah. Right. Like you could do something, but you didn't. Right. But that doesn't mean that it didn't affect you. Right. In social justice discourse, white people are not supposed to have full-time jobs dismantling white supremacy. It's either part-time work or it's a hobby. Um, you can bring it into parts of your job, but it's not its not a thing that can or should put food on your table. And I think in soundbite activism, this makes a lot of sense because the soundbite has always been it's unethical to perpetrate harm and then profit off of that harm. We've heard this over and over again. We even talked about it last episode. Right. And that narrative, I think, is built in to the core argument of shame that white people are never victims of race and racism. White people are only perpetrators of race and racism. Like, we are not impacted negatively by racism. And this is different than reverse racism, right? Like, that's not, we're not talking about that. Thank you for saying that. That is not what we're saying at all. Okay, I'm saying that this is what uh, this is what destroys our humanity. This is mm. this is moral injury. This is perpetration induced traumatic stress. Whenever we have that like that fight or flight feeling that comes up when people start talking about race or racism, mm -hmm. that's us being impacted by racism. Mm. And this is where I like there's hurts and then there's harms. And to me, a hurt isn't as 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 deep cutting as a harm. Does that make sense? Like I'm, I'm hurt by something rather than I've been harmed by. Harmed feels more long-term. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, I guess I've never thought about it before, but that seems true. Feels true. So the brilliant mm -hmm. Clementine Morgan. Genius. Differentiates hurt and harm. And I think it's actually really applicable, applicable to the conversation that we're having here. And Clementine says, every time you are hurt is not an example of harm. People do not need to be accountable for hurting your feelings or behaving in ways you don't like. There's a difference between someone acting in the ways that violate your boundaries and someone acting in ways that end up hurting you. For example, it might really hurt you for your partner to end their relationship with you or to be unable or unwilling to meet a particular need of yours. That will hurt and you will have the right to feel hurt, but they haven't harmed you and they don't need to be accountable. Disagreements, conflicts, mismatched needs and boundaries and all sorts of normal human interactions can result in hurt. That doesn't mean anyone has done anything wrong or has anything to be accountable for. It's a good thing to, to be considerate and show concern and care when we have hurt someone's feelings, but that is not the same as taking responsibility for having done something wrong. It is not wrong to have boundaries, to disagree, to be in conflict, and you don't need to apologize for these things. A lot of the discourse on harm and accountability encourages codependent relating. It's normal for other people's boundaries and differences to bring up feelings of hurt. That doesn't mean they've caused harm. Mm. And so when I think about the hurt versus harm with white people and racism and how we are impacted, we mm -hmm. are hurt. Yeah. 
we are hurt, but we are not seeking, nor should we seek the accountability of folks of color in that hurt. Yeah, no. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If anything, we are accountable for Mm -hmm. that hurt. And that's where we are simultaneously perpetrators and victims because we are hurting ourselves. Like cancel culture is perhaps nothing more than untreated and unchecked moral injury bonding. Cancel culture and conspiratorial culture make so much more sense to me when I understand them and access them as moral injury culture. And because the injury goes untreated, unacknowledged or like unchecked, people get stuck there and then it morphs into a trauma response. What a mindfuck. Isn't it? And so that to me is where really keeping in that white people are hurt by this, white people are impacted by this. And because we have to be accountable to ourselves and by our own actions, we have to be doing this work too. Right. Yeah. It only makes sense. I know. It's just really freaking frustrating. That's when I know that I'm frustrated. I won't cuss. I will use. Freaking. Um, <laughs> and I'm really frustrated. It's just so gosh darn frustrating. Damn it. Damn <laughs> it.